Welcome to What Really Happened. My name is Andrew Jenks. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. I have a really special announcement. The fourth reaction episode is coming soon on March 6th. This episode will not be like any other episode we've done, really, because you, the listeners, will be our guests. If you have an opinion or a question about any of the episodes, just call us at, and I'm going to leave the number here for you, so get a pen or or what have you out. It is 347-674-6980, or you can email me. That email is andrew at jenkspod.com. Uh, And honestly, anything that you think would be interesting, themes you found, storylines that uh, you want to talk about, nothing is off limits. It's all on the table. We'd love to hear from you. Now, time for the episode. You have it all. Born healthy, solid personality, can reasonably adapt to different situations, brains to get by, even excel. It's all teed up for you to have a life of love, meaning, and enjoyment. But there's one outstanding factor, your family. Mom and dad, siblings, wives and husbands, kids. When we look back at season two, what impact did family have on what really happened? As it turns out, everything. I'm going to focus this episode specifically on parents. I've chronicled 16 different stories this season. And within each story, I would normally study the main character's parents or whomever their parental figure in life was. Venus and Serena Williams' parents, Kurt Cobain's parents, Angela Merkel's parents, Steve Jobs' adopted parents, Kawhi Leonard's uncle, the list goes on. What I found truly shocking is the direct relationship between the type of parents each person has or had and the person they've become. Maybe this seems obvious, of course parents influence a person, but I've been really surprised that there weren't any exceptions. Let me explain. Take Dave Chappelle. Whether you enjoy Dave Chappelle's comedy or not, we can all agree he's one of the most popular comedians in the world. Now, Dave's mom was quite literally a pioneer. She established what very likely was the first PhD program in black studies in 1974. As Dave put it on James Lipton's show inside the actor's studio, She's got a master's in divinity, a PhD in African-American studies and something else about some sociology. She's, <laughs> she's got a stack of degrees in, in the house somewhere. She worked for Lumumba. Uh, he hired her himself, and she worked there during the Civil War. She was there when he was, when he was assassinated. Dave's father was also an academic and professor in Ohio. At a young age, after learning that Bill Cosby made a living making jokes, Chappelle knew he wanted to do comedy. Now, his mother could have said, hell no, you go to school and get an education. I've worked hard to ensure you get a proper education. Instead, here's Dave explaining what happened. I was so excited, I told my family, I have an announcement to make, I'm going to be a comedian. You know, it was like real. Because I was always funny. I'm the youngest kid, you know, the youngest kid in the family usually plays that role of the tension breaker. Right. I was that dude. And uh, that's when my mom suggested that maybe I go to a comedy club and check it out. 
Live comedy is the most incredible thing in the world to me. Like the first time you see a dude just standing there talking, every joke he's saying just hitting, it was working. Every weekend I would go, I'd get a little money, and to the point they started knowing me, I'd just sit in the crowd and I'd just be watching. And then at that point I was talking to a comedian after one of the shows and and the owner of the comedy club, and they were both saying, you know, if you want to be a good comedian, you got to take acting classes. And they didn't explain it. But after that, I went home and I said, Mom, I got to take acting classes. And that's how the Duke Ellington thing started. That's a school of the arts, right? Yeah. And what did you study there? Theater. The school was incredible. Classical acting, modern acting, improvisation, technical theater, script analysis, uh, script writing. Originally, my plan was I'll go to school, and then after I graduate, I'll start stand-up. But then I was like, I'm going to the club after school. It's Tuesday, so I'm going to go to that open mic night. I had been practicing with the candlestick and the mirror. I felt like I was ready. And I told my family I was going. I told my mom, you know, I'm going. I don't want you to come. I want to go by myself. It's something I got to do and whatever, whatever. So, of course, she shows up <laughs> with my grandmother <laughs> and, and my brother. The MC introduced me. I can remember the introduction. You know, folks, everybody's got to start sometime. And tonight is this young man's first time on stage. Who knows? Exactly what he says. Who knows? You may be witnessing the birth of a star. Please welcome Dave Chappelle. <laughs> and I went up there, man, and I was scared. And I used to look at my feet when I started. And I said the first joke, looking down at my feet, and they laughed. And then I looked up, holy. And then I looked back down at my feet and said, no. <laughs> and after the set, you know, the crowd was going crazy. I think I did two and a half minutes, but they were going crazy. I was 14, probably looked like I was 11. I was telling jokes about Jesse Jackson running for president and Alf Spaceship landing in a black neighborhood. Because <laughs> before I got on, I was scared and I told my grandmother, like, you might hear me say some things that you might not want to hear your grandson say. And she said, just relax and do that shit. I said, whoa. Oh. <laughs> So it went, it went great. Think about that. He tells his mom as a young teenager he wants to be a comedian, and what does she do? She helps him change schools and says he should go to clubs. Then his mom goes with his grandmother to show support at the comedy club. With another set of parents, does Dave Chappelle even become a comedian? Who knows? There was one major study conducted by psychologist Diana Baumrind that many point to when understanding different parenting styles. Baumrind broke it up into three different types of parenting styles. One of the three is authoritarian. Authoritarian parents are, quote, obedience and status-oriented and expect their orders to be obeyed without explanation. So the classic example is mom or dad say, you did wrong, go to your bedroom. The kid says why, and mom or dad say because I said so. So the kid goes to their bedroom but are actually unaware of what they did. 
They're not trying to be clever, they really don't understand the mistake they're making, if one at all. They're growing up in a world of the unknown and fear. What I found really surprising this year is that I couldn't find any group of parents in the over 12 people I documented who had two parents that both parented this way. Zero. I find that really interesting. The second type of parenting is authoritative parenting. This would seem to be Dave Chappelle's parents, certainly his mother. Authoritative parenting is considered the most positive, the most effective type of parenting. Authoritative parenting is defined as a style characterized by high responsiveness and high demands. Authoritative parents are responsive to the child's emotional needs while having high standards. They set limits and are very consistent in enforcing boundaries. So it's pretty simple. Parents say, do this. If kid says no, parent hears them out. If it's a reasonable no, then maybe the parent listens. But if the kid follows the rules, the kid achieves quite a bit. The American College of Pediatricians says authoritative parents encourage individuality and independence, are warm and understanding of their child's perspective, require mature behavior within the child's range of ability, and base demands and prohibitions on their child's attributes, abilities, and developmental level. When making power assertive demands, they accompany their demands with explanations to help the child understand the parent's conception of appropriate behavior. They use reason and discussion to obtain a compliance and are willing to negotiate when they deem their child's objections to be reasonable. They praise worthy behavior and achievement and criticize actions that require change. So it's not like you get trophies just for participating. They also impose sanctions that connect logically to the consequences of their child's actions. They monitor their child's activities and know their whereabouts. And because authoritative parents are warm, responsive, and autonomy supportive, as well as power assertive, their children are motivated to restore family harmony by complying or else by constructively dissenting in an effort to change their parents' mind rather than to defiantly or evasively disobey. Children are more community-oriented and agentic than their peers. So I was thinking about the following the other day, and bear with me here. I spend so much of my time trying to balance a bunch of different things, and I really think about what to prioritize and why. What are my values? As much as I work, am I spending quality time with my friends and family? Am I spending time on weekends working on the projects I really care about? But oddly enough, I've never spent time giving too much thought to the mattress I'd sleep on, even though it's where I spend nearly, what, half my life. I never really made it a priority. I can't say I've ever looked forward to getting in a bed before, but that, I really mean it, has changed. You've heard me talk about how much I love my sleep number bed. My sleep number setting is 50 and my partner's is to be determined. Sleep number beds really will change your life, change mine. It's awesome they've become a partner of this show. And there's never been a better time to save unproven quality sleep. Now, during the ultimate sleep number event, a Queen 360 smart bed starts at only $899. The sleep number 360 smart beds are so smart, they sense your every move, literally, and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Sleep number has been ranked highest in consumer satisfaction with mattresses by JD Power. For 2018 award information, visit jdpower.com. Now, come in during the ultimate sleep number event and save 50% on a sleep number 360 limited edition smart bed. See what your sleep number setting is 
and so much more. My sleep number is 50. Sleep number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find sleep number at one of their 575 sleep number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com slash WRH to find the one nearest you. In our episodes this year, nearly all of the people I followed seem to have at least one parent that falls under the authoritative bracket. Dave Chappelle's mom seemed to say, if you're going to do comedy, you have to go to the clubs and work at it. You have to go to an art school and do well. Not only that, but mom is going to go to the club to see how you're doing. Another example of authoritative parents from this year would be the Williams sisters' parents. Now, unlike Chappelle's mom, the Williams sisters didn't go to their parents and say, we want to play tennis. We want to be tennis players. In fact, it was the other way around. But that doesn't mean their parents weren't authoritative. The next few minutes are from episode one, The Scandal Match. The Williams sisters' father, Richard Williams, apparently knew the danger and chose to move the family to Compton from Louisiana. According to Richard, he could have afforded having the girls grow up elsewhere, but, quote, there was no place in the world that was rougher than Compton. The ghetto will make you rough, it will make you tough, it will make you strong. And so that's why I went to Compton with them. Richard is a character, worthy of his own podcast episode or podcast series. I don't know, I'd be open to anything. And how he came to decide that his daughters should play tennis is something you couldn't make up. It was the late 1970s. Richard was watching a match in which an announcer mentioned that the women's 1978 French Open champion had made $40,000 in one week of tournament play. This was more than Richard had made all year, and so the next morning, he went on a search to confirm this was true, that female tennis players could make that much money. Turns out it was true. And so, as the story goes, he returned home and said to his wife, we need to make two kids and make them into tennis superstars. The only issue, or one issue, was that Richard knew nothing about the game. So he bought some books, watched tennis as much as he could, and became a student, and soon an expert of sorts. He starts taking the whole family to the local tennis courts. He begins training not just Venus and Serena, but their other sisters as well. And this isn't like those gorgeous hard courts at the IMG Academy on the waters of Western Florida, or the beachfront clay courts at the variety of tennis academies in Spain. These are tennis courts in Compton, where tennis isn't something many people play. In fact, at the time, the tennis courts are mostly an area to dump leftover syringes, glass bottles, and other trash. But Richard doesn't care, and he takes a unique approach. And by most accounts, an obsessive approach. Not in a bad way, but he treats his daughters, Venus and Serena, as the generational players they had become. Richard has them on a routine that could match many professionals. Yes, the greats normally begin tennis at an early age, but not like this. While many young players were practicing their shots, lobs, or serves, Richard also has his daughters just outside of the court. Serena recalls her dad telling them that pitchers had the best arms, so the girls would throw baseballs and footballs to simulate a forward-throwing motion and build muscle. 
Sometimes he'd bring upwards of a hundred old tennis rackets, and the girls would be chucking the rackets one after another as far as they could. He also would tell the girls that boxers had the best feet. So when they weren't moving their feet like he wanted them to in practice, he had a professional boxer come to a nearby sand pit and box with the girls. Richard also wanted to put his daughters in every conceivable scenario, at one point telling an opponent to cheat throughout the match so that Venus had to sort out how to react. Richard went on to write a 78-page manifesto as to how his daughters would attain greatness. But he also ensures that tennis didn't get in the way of schoolwork. All of his daughters learned ballet, jazz, taekwondo, different languages. He always wants to make them tougher and smarter. So Richard Williams pulls off two types of training, physical and mental. He prepares his daughters on both fronts. Richard forced his daughters to believe tennis fame was inevitable. They were quite literally born to do this. For years, every single day, he had them write down what it would look like when they took center stage. He had them believe it was a foregone conclusion. And if you listen close enough to old videos, you hear him telling the four- and five-year-old daughters to imagine. Listen to this very quick clip of him telling Serena to picture hitting a U.S. Open winner. Right there. Right here at the U.S. Open. This is you. Right there. Good service motion. That's you. Boom! Now, like I said, you could say, well, that sounds more like authoritarian. But to me, it always sounded like Richard's kids wanted to play. It was also an escape for them from the other, more dangerous parts of Compton. Being an authoritarian parent doesn't mean you're perfect. And what's vital to remember is, if there are two parents in a child's life, don't lose sight of what that other parent is up to. This is also from episode one, The Scandal Match. I was coming up painfully short in understanding more about the Williams sister's mother. And as it turns out, the unsung hero. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to the Williams sister's mom, Oracine Price. It is Oracine, who trained mostly with Serena while they were kids, as Richard stuck with Venus. Apparently, Richard couldn't handle Serena and would say, she crazy. Oracine has said she made Serena believe in herself and believe that she could get any ball. Serena has gone on to say that my dad was the body, my mom the spine. Neither, in terms of growing up playing tennis, could exist without the other. The teamwork was unbelievable. Oracine had one core belief that she instilled in both children, which was to always face anger or hostility with a calm demeanor, especially off the court. Says Oracine, it's like the Bible says. If someone is talking bad about you, be happy. It's almost like the Williams sisters had perfect parents that in many ways balanced each other out very well. Something else I would emphasize with this concept of an authoritative parent is that they also lean in into what they see their children enjoy. Maybe it's not as blatant as Dave Chappelle's mom. It may be more nuanced. If they get a sense that their child wants something, no matter how outrageous, they allow the kid to run with it, to an extent. The following is from our episode on Kanye West, a portrait of the artist as a young man. Here, I'm reading a passage from Kanye West's mom's book. 
Kanye rode his bike to school every day, which was about six or eight blocks away from the campus. He was the only foreign kid in his class. Although he was 10 years old, he'd been put in first grade because of the language barrier. I thought it would be awkward for him, but he adjusted quickly. He learned math, some science, and especially the language, and for the most part got along well with the other kids. The teachers seemed to adore him. He was no doubt a novelty and the first black kid they'd seen in person. I was pretty annoyed that when the Chinese children would see Kanye, they'd yell, breakdance, breakdance. They didn't know much English, if any at all, but they knew breakdance. It was very stereotypical to me, but maybe the stereotype was based on the American culture as a whole, not just on Kanye being black. Still, I was annoyed. It should not have surprised me to learn one day that Kanye had been putting his breakdancing skills to use. He could spin on his head and everything. Fearing he might break his neck or something, I always forbade him to do it. One day as he approached me, I noticed he was eating a skewer of sheep meat. You could purchase it on the streets, and we'd long since gotten over our hesitancy about eating the meat, which had not been refrigerated, much less approved by the USDA. I had not given Kanye any money, though. I wondered how did he buy the sheep meat? He'd been charging the kids to see him breakdance. I was amused and not altogether happy about it at the same time. I discouraged his little capitalistic venture, but I never really checked up to see if he continued. As long as he'd leave out the spinning on his head part, I wasn't upset enough to put the fear of God in him about doing it. I never saw him with more skewers, though. Maybe he stopped. So in that clip, Kanye's mom makes it perfectly clear. He didn't do anything that made her think she should put the fear of God in him. She even says she never really checked up to see if he continued. Kanye's mom knew what he was doing and his off time maybe wasn't ideal. She let him know that. He was testing the boundaries and she let him know he was pretty close to crossing that red line. But he was clearly enjoying what he was doing, making some money doing it, and she wasn't really going to stop him. Also, Kanye's mom was clearly attuned to his talents. She wrote this in her book. Quote, We were coming back from a short vacation in Michigan when he was five, and he composed a poem in the back seat. The one line that sticks with me is, The trees are melting black. It was late fall, and the trees had no leaves. He saw how those limbs were etched against the sky, and he described them the way a poet would. Yogi Berra said 90% of life is showing up. Maybe 90% of parenting is listening and then adjusting accordingly. Now, were these kids born with a certain set of gifts in which no matter who their parents were, they would have found phenomenal levels of success? Maybe, but I don't think so. There's a good chance they never would have had the opportunity to even give it a shot. The third type of parents are permissive parents. Author Kendra Cherry says... Permissive parenting is a type of parenting style characterized by low demands with high responsiveness. Permissive parents tend to be very loving, yet provide few guidelines and rules. These parents do not expect mature behavior from their children and often seem more like a friend than a parental figure. These parents tend to be the polar opposite of the so-called helicopter parents. Instead of hovering over their children's every move, permissive parents are incredibly lax and rarely make or enforce any type of rules or structure. Their motto is often simply that kids will be kids. While they are usually warm and loving, they make little or no attempt to control or discipline their kids. Again, what I find incredible is that 
in those that I followed this season, none of those whom I documented seemed to have had two parents who were permissive. Maybe, maybe they had one, but they always had another parent that fit into that authoritative bucket. If you read up on parenting styles, you'll see many in the psychology field also say there's a fourth style. Psychologist Eleanor Maccabee and John Martin proposed this fourth style, calling it uninvolved parenting. Pretty self-explanatory, essentially neglectful parenting. Again, from author Kendra Cherry, while these parents fulfill the child's basic needs, they are generally detached from their child's life. They might make sure that their kids are fed and have shelter, but offer little to nothing in the way of guidance, structure, rules, or even support. In extreme cases, these parents may even reject or neglect the needs of their children. This brings us to the musicians I documented in our episode titled The 27 Club. Without knowing about this uninvolved parenting style, I said the following in the episode. The second similarity with these musicians, divorce or traumatic experiences with parents. Amy Winehouse was nine years old when her parents split. Kurt Cobain was also nine years old when his parents divorced. He wrote on his bedroom wall, I hate mom, I hate dad, dad hates mom, mom hates dad. Kurt was ultimately sent to live with cousins, eventually becoming virtually homeless. When Jimi Hendrix was 15 years old, his mom died behind a bar after collapsing. His dad wouldn't let Jimmy go to the funeral. Jim Morrison's father, a military man, was always moving, and Jim wrote about wanting to kill his dad and refused to ever see him. In Brian Jones' late teens, his parents were so sick of his lifestyle that he came home one night to find his suitcase in the driveway. Said Pat Andrews, a girlfriend of Brian's and mother to one of his children, the one thing Brian wanted was for his father, more so than his mother, to say, Brian, I'm proud of you. So do studies or my anecdotal evidence suggest that divorce or absentee parents mean you're doomed for a life of sorrow? Of course not. Dave Chappelle's parents divorced, so did the Williams sisters, mom and dad. But despite their parents' split, both seem to have remained heavily involved in their child's lives. And while the musicians I documented were able to reach high levels of success, their lack of loving figures in their lives you could argue, made it impossible for them to reach their 30th birthday. And to be clear, it doesn't have to be a parent. It just seems like there has to be a mentor or a family member that can really connect with a kid. Take Kawhi Leonard from our episode, The Really Shy Superstar. After his father was murdered, it wasn't just Kawhi's mom that continued to be an incredible influence in his life, but also his uncle. To what extent, I don't know, but many believe it was in fact his uncle that played a huge part in why Kawhi left the San Antonio Spurs and was ultimately traded to the Toronto Raptors. I looked at my mom and said, guess what? I got it. For the last at least 10 years, we had a disorganized bundle of dozens and dozens of VHS tapes in the basement, which occasionally flooded, so I don't know why we kept them in there. But Regardless, there was a lot of tapes from our family trips, our years living in Belgium, birthdays, and my random interviews I do with friends and neighbors. I like pretending to be a CNN correspondent. We remembered what were on those tapes, those VHS tapes, but not what really happened. I knew that in those tapes were stories of my childhood, not just the memories, but 
Also the nuances, how my brother was always putting on a show, my dad's strong, even stronger back then, British accent, reminding us to read, and my mom making sure everyone was having fun and doing okay. Of course, granddad was working on his latest science experiment. I wanted to bring those memories back to life, so I decided to use Legacy Box to transfer these tapes to a downloadable file so that everyone in the family could enjoy. It brought back a lot of tears and even more laughs. It was all really simple, which was great because I at first was terrified of putting these tapes in the wrong hands. All you do is send your legacy box filled with old home movies and pictures, and they'll do the rest, professionally digitizing your moments onto a thumb drive, digital download, or DVD. They have easy-to-follow instructions and safety barcodes included for every item. You receive all of your original recorded moments back along with perfectly preserved digital copies. You get personalized updates at every step, receiving up to 12 personalized email updates. Legacy Box is actually the world's largest, most trusted digitizer of home movies and photos. Over 450,000 families have trusted Legacy Box. All of the work is done by hand right here in the USA. They have over a decade of experience. There's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories. Visit LegacyBox.com today to get started. Plus, here's the important part, for a limited time, they're offering my listeners an exclusive discount. Go to LegacyBox.com slash WRH to get 40% off your first order. Go to LegacyBox.com slash WRH and save 40% today. Get started preserving your past. The best, most obvious example out of anyone I've documented who really helps us understand parenting styles is Steve Jobs. I kind of am rolling my eyes. I feel a bit of Steve Jobs fatigue myself. Two scripted films, multiple documentaries and books. But I find the following fascinating. Steve Jobs was given up for adoption. What impact did this have? The following is from an interview I did with Trip Hawkins, founder of Electronic Arts. Trip worked with Steve in the early days of Apple when Trip was director of strategy and marketing at Apple. In this clip, Trip was talking to me about what he would tell people when they would ask why Steve Jobs, at a young age, was driven, but also a bit of a, well, not the nicest guy. And I would say to them, this is back in the 1970s that I, that I was actually saying this, mm. here's the deal. He was given up for adoption at birth. Mm. He's mad as heck at his biological parents, and he's determined to make so much noise and to rise above the rest of humanity to such a great height that his biological parents see him and know their shame. Mm. Wow. And he actually pulled that off. How, how crazy is that? And it's not like Tripp was the only one that said this. One of Steve Jobs' good friends from his 20s, Daniel Kotke, said you can trace all that back to his feelings of rejection at having learned that he was given up for adoption mm. right he was very young and sensitive and ran home crying to his mother because the neighborhood boy said oh you were given up for adoption because your parents didn't love you and uh, so that was a very uh, profound formative influence on steve that made him determined to make his mark in the world. Um, not a bad mm. thing, yeah. <laughs> right? 
What Trip Hawkins, I wish my name was Trip, really drove home for me was a fascinating, really a fascinating duality with Steve. A combination of genes from his biological parents and the nurturing he was able to experience from his adopted parents. Steve never met his biological father and only had brief encounters with his birth mother. Here, Trip is talking about Steve's biological parents. Steve's parents were very, very smart people. They met at the University of Wisconsin, where they were had both been admitted to PhD programs. Mm, yeah, right. These are really smart people. So, yeah, that's going to help you be smart if you're Steve. You got parents that are really smart. Again, you, you know, IQ, uh, right. a lot, of, a lot of that capacity is inherited. Well, he he wanted to blame his father, but what we know about his father's family is his father came all the way from Syria. So here's a guy who's in the Middle East, and he decides he wants to be in a PhD program in Wisconsin. Well, right there, you think, okay, well, that's a risk taker. That's outside the box thinking. Mm. Again, that's something that is inherited. Mm. So he has his father, perhaps, to thank for that. But, you know, his mother, even in the 70s, you know, again, uh, someone who's leaving home and going off to uh, a graduate school somewhere else. You know, these are badass parents <laughs> that, <laughs> that really... Uh, really contributed to who he was and his father's family. They apparently were so economically successful in the Middle East that they owned oil refineries and controlled the price of wheat in Arabia. So these are incredible business people. So yeah, there's there's some gifts there that you're getting genetically. But then Tripp talks about Steve's adopted parents. And then Steve ends up in, uh, you know, being adopted in a family where uh, the, the father, uh, Paul Jobs, that guy was a hobbyist and a tinkerer and a great engineer. And he really took Steve under his wing and he was Steve's first mentor. This is all well documented. So he had adopted parents that ended up being authoritative parents. They encouraged Steve to achieve his dreams. Steve called his father a genius with his hands, and his dad taught him the ins and outs of electronics, and the two would go on scavenger hunts searching for odd spare parts. His father didn't push him into anything, but was happy to encourage him. Meanwhile, Steve's biological parents, otherwise known as uninvolved parents, made Steve dangerously motivated, likely to a fall. But there is plenty of material out there that suggests we, as a culture in America, overemphasize the role of parents. Psychologist Judith Rich Harris wrote a controversial book titled The Nurture Assumption, Why Children Turn Out the Way They Do. She said we place too high a value on parenting styles. As the New York Times pointed out, the book, quote, set academic psychology on fire by attacking the notion that parenting styles shape children. In an interview, Harris said the following, It's a few minutes, but interesting in terms of understanding another point of view. She said, Questioning a cherished cultural myth is always risky. What most people don't realize is that different cultures have different myths about the role of parents. The belief that parents have a great deal of power to determine how their children will turn out is actually a rather new idea. Not until the middle of the last century did ordinary parents start believing it. I was born in 1938, before the cultural change, and parenting had a very different job description back then. Parents didn't feel they had to sacrifice their own convenience and comfort in order to gratify the desires of their children. 
They didn't worry about boosting the self-esteem of their children. In fact, they often felt that too much attention and praise might spoil them and make them conceited. Physical punishment was used routinely for infractions of household rules. Fathers provided little or no child care. Their chief role at home was to administer discipline. All these things have changed dramatically in the past 70 years, but the changes haven't had the expected effects. People are the same as ever. Despite the reduction in physical punishment, today's adults are no less aggressive than their grandparents were. Despite the increase in praise or physical affection, they are not happier or more self-confident or in better mental health. I've put together a lot of evidence showing that children learn at home how to behave at home. That's where the parents do have power and they learn outside the home how to behave outside the home. So if you want to improve the way children behave in school, for instance, by making them more diligent and less disruptive in the classroom, then improving their home environment is not the way to do it. What you need is a school-based intervention. That's where teachers have power. A talented teacher can influence a whole group of kids. The teacher's biggest challenge is to keep this group of kids from splitting up into two opposing factions, one pro-school and pro-learning, the other anti-school and anti-learning. When that happens, the differences between the groups widen. The pro-school group does well, but the anti-school group falls further and further behind. A classroom with 40 kids is more likely to split up into opposing groups than one with 20, which may explain why students tend to do better in smaller classes. But regardless of class size, some teachers have a knack for keeping their classrooms united. Teachers in Asian countries seem to be better at this than Americans, and I suspect this is one of the reasons why Asian kids learn more in school. No doubt there's a difference in cultures, but maybe we could study how they do it and apply their methods here. The tendency of kids to split up spontaneously into subgroups also explains this uneven success rate of programs that put children from disadvantaged homes into private or parochial schools. The success of these programs hinges on numbers. If a classroom contains one or two kids who come from a different background, they assimilate and take on the behaviors and attitudes of the others. But if there are five or six, they form a group of their own and retain the behaviors and attitudes they came in with. Now, with all of that said, with all of the people we spoke about and re-featured in season two, it's impossible to not see the correlation in parenting styles and the impact this had on the personalities of their children. As I thought about what Harris said, I thought about something I believe, that things don't happen for a reason, but I do think you can try to make a reason for something happening. The purpose for me even saying this is because I think who a person becomes isn't necessarily a result of their parents, but the individuals I followed this year did take whatever their parents' approach to parenting style was and figured out a way to make it work for them. If nothing else, Judith Rich Harris does remind us that there's a lot of other moving parts at play. That is, if you want to look at yourself in the mirror and understand what really happened. That is all for this week's episode. And if you're interested in more information, I would definitely recommend the book, Parenting for Character, Five Experts, Five Practices. And again, don't forget that our fourth reaction episode is coming out soon on March 6th. The episode will not be like any others because all of you, our listeners, will also be our guests. Uh, I want to talk with you, hear what you think, questions you might have. Uh, just call us. Uh, the number is 
674-6980. Or you can email me. Uh, my email is andrew at jenkspod.com. Again, it can be themes that you found, characters or storylines you find interesting, questions. Nothing is off limits.